We come now to chapter 9 of 1 Kings, and we remember last week this, uh, there was the dedication of the temple, the single greatest accomplishment of uh, King Solomon's life was the construction of that temple and the dedicating of it uh, to the Lord. And then Solomon's wonderful prayer that he extended in dedicating that uh, temple to the Lord. And then that great 14-day celebration of really offering sacrifices to the Lord, communing with God, celebrating with one another. The temple had finally been built and uh, just the end of I mean, just one of the greatest days in the history uh, of the nation of Israel up to that point. And then chapter 9, it came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house of so the temple, also Solomon's palace, which took 13 years and all Solomon's desire, which he wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time. As he had appeared to him at Gibeon at the beginning of his reign, this is about 20 years later or, or you know, at least seven years later. And the Lord said to him uh, in, in speaking to him, he said, I have heard your prayer, your supplication that you have made before me. And in answer to that prayer, I have consecrated this house, this temple, which you have built to put my name there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. It'd be kind of a touchstone, a meeting place for God's people with God and all of the world, that temple in Jerusalem at that time. And then God uh, reminds him of the same thing that he had reminded him of at the beginning of his reign concerning obedience. He said, now, if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness, to do according to all that I have commanded you. And if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. As I promised David, your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I've set before you, but you go and you serve other gods and you worship them, then, and here are the two worst consequences that the children of Israel could ever hear. God said, if you begin to disobey me and the nation does also, then, number one, I will cut off Israel from the land which I've given them. I will drive them out of the land of Israel. It will be inhabited by others. And then he said, number two, and this house, which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast it out of my sight. And this rule will be uh, a proverb and a byword among all the people. So God says, I like what happens. I like the temple. I like what happens there. Um, I want this kind of relationship with my people. But if you ever become characterized by disobedience, for you to be in the land apart without disobedience brings me no pleasure. For you to worship me at the temple, absent an obedient life, it brings me no pleasure. And, and then if you get yourself into that place and you are 
convinced that somehow that does bring me pleasure, then I will drive you out of this land and I will destroy that temple to drive home the point that what I want most in a relationship with you is just simple obedience to my word. And ultimately that's going to happen. God is going to, in the time of Ezekiel, he will depart. His, the sin of the children of Israel. I'm not talking about pagans. The sin of God's people became so great that God vacated. He abandoned the temple and then left Jerusalem, was by way of the Mount of Olives, hesitated there for a moment, and then his presence went off into the wilderness. They will absolutely be driven from the land, first by the Assyrians, the northern ten tribes, the southern uh, two tribes, by the Babylonians, because they will not heed this call to obedience. One of the most important lessons that we draw from this second warning that God gives Solomon concerning the same subject, obedience is paramount with me. At a relationship or all of this religious activity, none of that it, I can enjoy or use apart from personal obedience. Whenever God comes to us and he speaks to us or warns us about an area in our life, there are reasons for that. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Solomon, by virtue of the fact that God warned him twice concerning the same issue, would have been very wise to realize, evidently, I have a weakness in my life in the area of willful disobedience to God's word. And apparently I have an ability to deceive myself into thinking that I'm okay with God on the basis of all of these other things when I'm not obeying him. It's so easy when God warns someone like Solomon or you and I when we find ourselves in Solomon's place. Here it is. Maybe the greatest event in his entire reign. I mean, he's just dedicated the temple and 14 days of sacrifices and the worship of God. He's still feeling the afterglow of this. And God comes to him and warns him about obedience. The temptation would be, what are you talking about? I mean, the way that I feel about you right now, I mean, what's inside of me and inside of my spirit, I mean, I'll never disobey you. And he's, he's so strong with the afterglow of the, that great spiritual high that he was on in the, in the middle of. And, and those highs are appropriate. They're wonderful. So it probably seemed like a crazy warning, a needless warning. But when God warns us, there is always a reason. And you don't have to fall big to discover the, this truth. I have never stumbled and fallen, whether large or small, in my Christian life, except that I could look back and see where God warned me ahead of time. And I did not take it as seriously as I ought to. I haven't sinned to the degree that Solomon, as we're going to see, he sinned. But that's not the issue. The issue is to always heed his warnings. There are reasons that he warns us the way that he does. He said, as for this house, apart from 
obedience and the future destruction of it if you don't obey me. Verse 8, this temple which is exalted, everyone who passes by it one day will be astonished at it and, it, and will hiss. In other words, that temple is going to be destroyed and even the Gentile nations, when they go by, I mean, they had probably seen it. They had heard of it. And now, you know, the whole thing is just destroyed and stripped by uh, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon coming up in Israel's history. And when it talks about the fact that they would hiss, that they would hiss it means that they would whistle. You ever see something you go, you just go, I mean, you don't want to say anything. You don't want, you just, you don't even have words for what you're seeing. And that's what people would, would look at it. And they go, wow, look at what's going on, right? What we're seeing with our eyes. And they'll understand the reason for it. And they'll say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? And then they will answer, because they, the Jews, they forsook the Lord their God who had been so good to them, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods' idolatry, and they worship them and they serve them, and therefore the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. God wanted to use the nation of, the, uh, of Israel to be a witness to the Gentile nations of His goodness, of the blessings of obedience, to learn about His holiness and, and, and the goodness that follows obedience to His Word. But if they would not give Him that voluntarily as a witness to the Gentile nations, then God says, in effect, then I will make your discipline my witness to my reality and my standard and my holiness and my goodness even to the Gentile nations around you. And so the Gentile nations, would, God said, will realize why it is that all of this has come upon you. Serious warning, even with two warnings. I'm going to go over Solomon's head and over his heart. He's going to act like God never took the time to talk to him. Isn't it amazing? It's one of the things that I love about afterglows. Isn't it amazing when God takes the time? It's not like he's short on time. He lives in eternity. But when he gives us such personal attention that he speaks into our personal life and into our personal situation, I'll tell you, it really is something for us to prize it and to hold on to it as, you know, one of the most Precious things will happen to us in life, certainly to heed it and to take it seriously. Solomon didn't take it as seriously as he ought to. Now, it happened at the end of 20 years. Solomon reigned for 40, so it's the midpoint of his reign. When Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord, the temple, which took seven years, and the king's house, the palace, which took 13 years. So they get the end of all of this. And Hiram, the king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress and gold as much as he desired. Now, remember the original agreement that Hiram had with Solomon. Solomon had approached him and said, we need cedar and I need workers to work on the stonework for the building of the temple. So Hiram said, all right, 
You pay for the goods, you pay for the laborers, and then here's kind of the food supplies that I'd like you to give to my royal family during the construction of the temple, and you got a deal. But the construction of the temple then went on to the construction of the palace, it went on to the construction of uh, the hall of the forest of Lebanon and, and kind of the supreme court building of Israel. And so the construction just kept going on for 20 years. And so what was the negotiation for Hiram's involvement and his expertise and the cedar wood and, and, and the gold and people that were uh, uh, helping with the stonework and all? Well, it appeared that as a part of the negotiation for all of that, Solomon was uh, obligated to give him something. And they had agreed upon the fact that Hiram would receive some land from the area of the Galilee in Israel. So Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of the Galilee, which is up near the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel, which is near closer to Tyre, which is where Hiram was from. So Hiram then went from Tyre. Uh, which is a, a, a seacoast city, and he went to see the cities which Solomon had given to him, but they uh, did not please him. And so he got there and he, he had worked out this uh, deal, and he goes to take a look personally at what it is that he's been uh, given, and uh, he's more than a little disappointed. So he said to Solomon, What kind of cities are these which you have given me? My brother, <laughs> it's, he's he's basically rebuking him for his stinginess. It's like I I gave you all the cedar you wanted, I gave you all the labors you wanted, I gave you the gold that you wanted, and it was on the agreement that you would give me. And then this is what you are a very good bargainer, my brother. So he's kind of putting him to shame for how he kind of worked the deal. And so he then uh, called these cities the land of Kabul. Don't name your child that. Uh, as they are to this day, uh, Kabul means good for nothing. Literally, it really means rubbish, garbage. There's something. Well, what did Hiram think of your gift? Rubbish, garbage. <laughs> you know? Now, then Hiram uh, sent the king 120 talents of gold. Now, this 120 talents of gold, that's uh, 9,000 pounds of gold. What's gold trading for right now? I know it's over 1,000. Is it at 1,200? Somebody. What is it? 1,200 or so? So you got 9,000 pounds. Uh, you do the math on... 1,200 uh, 1, an ounce in terms of the value of this gold. So apparently this land, even though he calls it Kabul and he, does, and he uh, despises it, uh, the, the value of the land in comparison to what he had supplied Solomon for construction during the 20 years, it did require a gold payment to, to supplement uh, that apparently. Or this just represented some other transaction that we're not aware of. And this is the reason for the labor force which King Solomon raised. These are some of his uh, additional accomplishments and building projects. So he raised up 
a, a labor force to build the house of the Lord, the temple, his own house, the palace, the Milo, which is apparently some kind of a fortified uh, structure that was a part of um, what we would call a retaining wall today on the east side of Jerusalem. It's interesting. I don't want to bog you down with technicalities um, any more than I normally do. But if you do see a picture of Jerusalem from the time of David, you've got the Temple Mount that sits up here, Mount Moriah, the city of David, the Kidron Valley, the Mount of Olives over here. And the city of David sits below that uh, Mount of Moriah a little bit. And so Solomon builds the temple up here. The city is located lower in elevation. And what Solomon did is he built his palace up further up up the elevation and then uh, basically built retaining walls, brought in fill so that there was just this like continual landmass from the lower city of Jerusalem in David's time all the way up to the Temple Mount. So you need a lot of it's a big area to kind of do fill on, build retaining walls. And so he did that. I mean, he had the wealth, he had the labor to do it, and he did it. He built the wall of Jerusalem because Jerusalem expanded under his reign. He extended then the fortifications around the city. And he uh, part of uh, his fortifications uh, of the land in general was to build up and, and make a military city, the city of Hazor, which is located up in the north part of Israel. So it protected the north. Uh, from uh, attack, then Megiddo, which is in the uh, center of the land and on major trade routes through Israel. So he made that into a fortress city to protect the center of the land. And then uh, Gezer is in western uh, Judah, lower southern part of, of Israel. And so these were fortress cities that that protected the land. And Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up little background on Gezer, and he had taken the city, had burned it with fire, and he had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city. We don't know much about why. And he gave the city that he had conquered uh, as a result, as a dowry to his daughter, who then became Solomon's wife. And so Solomon built, uh, built Gezer, Lower Beth Horon, uh, Baalath, and Todmor in the wilderness, in the land of Judah, all the storage cities that Solomon had cities for his chariots, cities for his cavalry, uh, not for Calvary, but for his cavalry and uh, whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and all of the land of his dominion. And so had a lot of wealth, a lot of food. So he's, th- he's thinking like anybody would. You've got to have some places where what if we get hit with a drought or a famine? Let's have cities where we've got significant storage of food. And so he was doing all of this kind of stuff. Now, in terms of his labor force to accomplish all of this, all of the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, uh, the Jebusites, who were not of the children of Israel. Uh, these were the people that, uh, got, that the children of Israel were to destroy when they uh, took the land. Uh, they failed to do that. And so these people continue to have a presence in the land. And under Solomon, their descendants became a part of a labor force for the basically slave labor for the the servants to be the building of all of this. Um, 
And so their descendants who were left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel had not been able to destroy completely from the Solomon raised forced labor as it is to this day. But of the children of Israel, Solomon made no forced labors because they were men of war. So he used them in other positions in his military and as his servants, his officers, his captains and commanders of his chariots and his cavalry. Others were chiefs of the officials who were over Solomon's work, 550 who ruled over the people who did the work. And so these supervisors over these gigantic construction projects that were occurring um, all the way through his reign are certainly very, very strong in the first 20 years of his 40-year reign. But Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David uh, to her house, her palace, which Solomon built for her, and then he built the Milo. So as soon as her palace was built, he, bought her, uh, he built her a palace. And uh, as soon as her palace was built, uh, she got out of the city of David and then uh, resided for the rest of her life in, in this uh, special palace. It may have been pa- Solomon's palace as well, or it may uh, very well have been her own. Now, three times a year, Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar, which he had built for the Lord. And he burned incense with them on the altar that was before the Lord. And so he finished the temple. And so Solomon, at this point in his reign, he is intent upon keeping the Lord at the center of of Israel's national life, just as David did. So he's very strict about keeping the three major feasts of the Jewish religious calendar, which is the feast of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And so these feasts were established as a part of, of just the national life of Israel, and this was a good thing that he did. King Solomon also built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Elath, we know it today as Elat, uh, in, in Israel, down toward the Red Sea, on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. So we're getting, uh, Israel has never been known supremely for its navy, even though it was in ancient times located right on the Mediterranean. Um, and even today, when we think of Israel, we think of, um, we think of their army, uh, we think of their air force, but we don't, uh, you know, we don't recognize them as kind of a master power in terms of the Navy. It's never been a super strength uh, for them. But Solomon had the wealth and he had, uh, you know, just to kind of entertain himself. He was able to uh, involve himself in some things that maybe nobody else had been able to do before and nobody really did to the degree that he did uh, uh, after that. So he uh, does it in, in what is again today known as the city, is the city of Alat in, uh, in Israel. And uh, right next to it, for those of you who are Lawrence of Arabia fans, uh, is Aqaba. How many remember the movie? Aqaba. Ooh. So anyway, I like it. I like just to say it. So, and I happen to uh, like reading about Lawrence's life. Quirky, quirky guy. Amazing. Really. Okay, back to uh, subject here. So he built this. And uh, so he builds this fleet. And then Hiram sent 
his servants with the fleet, seamen who knew the sea, to work with the servants of Solomon. So, so the Jews were not that skilled at, at uh, having a navy. Uh, Hiram was over the Phoenicians. They were among the best uh, naval people in, in all of the ancient world. And so Hiram comes along and helps Solomon out on this. A Jewish fleet that mostly operated out of the Red Sea, moving toward Arabia and that direction to uh, get spices and trade and, and all kinds of things with that part of the world. So apparently Hiram, uh, this rift over the land, the cities that had been given to him, uh, that apparently healed because they're willing to work cooperatively uh, at, at this point in time. And so they went to Ophir and acquired 420 talents of gold from there, and they brought it to Solomon. So this fleet begins to pay for itself uh, pretty quickly. 420 talents of gold is 16 tons. That's 32,000 pounds of gold at, as you remember, $1,200 an ounce. So keep moving upwards. I mean, tons of money coming in. Uh, to Israel at that time. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. And so basically this lets us know that uh, Solomon is what we would call today at this point. He is world famous. So she hears about it. She's from Sheba, which is modern day Yemen. Uh, on the Arabian Peninsula, she hears about him and uh, about his wisdom, and she wants to come to uh, Israel in order to test him with hard questions to find out whether he's as smart as everybody says he is. Now, in the ancient world, it was very, very common to test kind of um, the, the capacity for wisdom, uh, the braininess, uh, of uh, of kings to pose riddles to them or mysteries to them. And then because anybody can call themselves a genius, anybody can become known as a really smart person. But to find out for yourself, they would go and they would pose these questions that had maybe never been answered before or question. Things, questions that had been answered, but very few people could answer in order to find out, is this all just a bunch of hype? Is this guy really smart or is the king naked? And he's and, and it's just a reputation that's going around. So she's heard about him. Now she wants to test and find out if he's the real deal. And so she came to Jerusalem. Now, she travels from Sheba. It is a twelve hundred mile journey. To come to Jerusalem. That's hot over there. We think today was hot. It's even hotter over there. She's a queen. People come to her. I mean, she has people. We're going to see the gift that she brings to Solomon. I mean, she knows money. She knows power. She knows wealth. She knows the whole uh, routine. And yet she is so impressed with what she's heard about Solomon 
that she's willing to get these camels together and all these animals together and her servants together and make a 2,500 mile round trip journey to talk to this guy. Pretty amazing. So she came with a very great retinue, with camels and bore, that bore spices, very much gold and precious stones. You don't come to before a guy like Solomon without bringing a gift. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was on her heart. So she takes and gives all of these riddles and all these questions, everything that she had in order to test them. And so Solomon answered all her questions. And he didn't even break a sweat. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. He answered every single question that she asked and she pa- he passes uh, her test here. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, not just listening to him, but seen how the whole empire in Jerusalem ran, seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, his palace, the food at his table as he fed his family and his servants. It said that that, that, that he fed on a daily basis 16,000 people, of course, of what was under his oversight. The seating of his servants, that is, his government officials at these meals, all their uniforms, all this, the service of his waiters. I mean, they knew how to do things right and here and efficient and their attractiveness in terms of their apparel and all of this, his cupbearers and how they conducted themselves. I mean, right down to the detail. And then his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, the temple, when she saw that, and apparently this spoke of some kind of a um, either a special kind of passage that he had from the palace to go to the temple or he made some kind of a uh, uh, great grand uh, conducting himself to the temple with such grandeur that this and all of everything else by the time she sought there was no more spirit in her. I mean, she's just completely overwhelmed. She's at a loss for words. She'd love to send a postcard home and tell them what she's seen, but she can't even put it into words. And then she said to the king, it was a true report, which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. I, I didn't believe the words. I, I, I doubted the reports that I was hearing until I came and saw it with my own eyes And indeed, the half was not told me. I was completely unprepared for what I ran into. And she recognizes that what she saw, heard in Solomon and what she was seeing with her eyes, it was supernatural, that this was God given. And she said, your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. She said, happier your men. And happy are those your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. This is what I hear from my staff all the time. (laughs) They're laughing the loudest. 
So basically what she's saying here, she's saying, I'm envious of your servants who get to stand here and serve and listen to you speak all day, every day. And it's quite a compliment from her. She said, blessed be the Lord, your God, who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. And so this is pretty heady stuff for anybody to be hearing. Um, and probably one of the reasons that the Lord warned him so specifically the way that he did. But basically, she's communicating. I recognize that what I'm seeing here and hearing here is divine. This is supernatural. What, what is going on? God has done this. And then she gave the king a little gift. Where, I'd like to know where this line forms, by the way. She gave the king 120 talents of gold, four and a half tons of gold. Here we're back to 9,000 pounds of gold again. 120 was kind of like, that was just a standard gift, I guess, that you brought to king. Spices in great quantity, precious stones. There never again came such abundance of spices as the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. She was in very much a, a trade route for spices there uh, in, in uh, Sheba. And, uh, and so she was able to bring him a gift that really would never be duplicated in, in Israel's history or certainly in uh, Solomon's, uh, during Solomon's reign. Also, the ships of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought him great quantities of almug wood and precious stones from Ophir. And so almug wood, we really don't know what uh, wood this is. Some speculate that it's a, a very... Uh, a beautiful red sandal wood, but they're just kind of guessing. And uh, but it was very, very valuable and very scarce because of uh, how uh, Solomon used it. He made it. Uh, the king made steps of the almug wood for the house of the Lord, also for the king's house, the palace. Also, he, it was so valuable and excellent for uh, the making of. Instruments of harps and stringed instruments for the singers. Uh, there never again came such almug wood, nor has the like been seen to this day. Now, King Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba all that she desired. So you think, man, look at what she gave him. Well, King Solomon was a greater king than she was a queen, you know, the way they would one up and all of that. And so she gave, she just, where's your list? And I'll give it to you. That's kind of what uh, anything that she desired was given to her besides what Solomon had given to her, according to the royal generosity. And so she turned and she went to her own country, she and her own uh, servants. And so uh, she made her way back home. Beautiful application of, of this particular passage in Scripture. And Jesus made it in the course of his uh, public ministry when he was talking with the Jewish scribes and the Pharisees concerning their unbelief directed toward him as the promised Messiah. And he said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, he said, the queen of the south, that is the queen of Sheba, will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed a greater than Solomon is before you. She traveled 1,200 miles in one direction 
great sacrifice to herself. Just to hear Solomon in terms of the reputation that he had for wisdom. And Jesus is saying to these Jewish religious leaders, you didn't have to travel anywhere. I came all the way from heaven to you. To speak a wisdom to you that is infinitely greater than Solomon's. And you won't show me the respect that the Queen of Sheba showed Solomon, much less appreciate my wisdom and heed my word. And he said that they would be judged for it uh, one day. So just mind-boggling from the perspective of heaven that here is the queen of Sheba that would do this related to Solomon and then to have the religious leaders of Jesus' day uh, turn their nose up at his wisdom having come from heaven in order to speak to us a wisdom that we would never otherwise know. Begin in verse 14. There is a description of just kind of the massive splendor of Solomon's reign and of his kingdom. The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. Now, if I was him, I'd say I'd like to make it one more talent or one less talent, please. It's the number of the Antichrist. I'm sure somebody can work some whole numerology thing into the whole deal. I try to stay away from that a little bit. And uh, so uh, the, this is what he got, those 666 talents of gold on an annual basis, 25 tons of gold. 50,000 pounds of gold was flowing into the national treasury. Besides that, on top of all of that, uh, there was the uh, uh, kind of uh, additional income that came from the traveling merchants and from the traders, uh, his dealings in trade with all of the kings of Arabia, the Gentile nations around him, and then from the governors of the country, that is, the governors over different regions of Israel. This is known as taxes. And Solomon is doing an awful lot of this on the back of the common man in terms of taxes. And he's going to end up with a tax revolt after his death uh, related to his son. And so uh, unbelievable amounts of wealth flowing in to that government. And the, then King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. Seven and a half pounds of gold. So the large shield was, uh, was the heavy shield. The big shield, big rectangular shield or an oval shield carried by the infantry into battle. Um, of course, their shields were not made of gold. Gold is a a soft metal, so it wouldn't provide any protection. This was a, these were decorative shields. And he also made 300 shields of hammered gold. Uh, three uh, miners of gold went into each shield. So they were three and three-quarter pounds of gold that went into them. They were a small shield, probably a round one that was carried in those days by the archers or by a royal bodyguard. And uh, these shields were then mounted as decoration up in the house of the forest of Lebanon. So some of you, as we were talking about these building and all of this cedar wood and all of this stone, you probably thought to yourself, man, you've got to have a little something up on those walls to break that up a little bit for interest. 
Well, here's your answer for how they did it. Five hundred shields that went into that house of the forest of Lebanon. And moreover, the king made a great throne. Now, um, you've got to think you're some kind of a grand poobah to make the kind. He's, this is getting to him to build a throne like this. He made a great throne because he thinks he's a great king. He's got a great God. He's a little man with a great God. And he takes and, and uh, builds this throne, a great throne of ivory. And then he overlaid it with pure gold. That's amazing to have something that much ivory into a throne. And then why in the world would you overlay it with gold? But that's exactly what they did because gold was the big deal. So he makes a little throne, something to sit on. So I remember Gail talking. Gail Irwin is a friend, and you, most of you know him. He lives in Cathedral City, which is kind of a, a city just outside of Palm Springs. And he was talking years ago. I remember talking about Palm Springs. I don't know if Palm Springs is as hot a spot as it used to be. But talking about all of the Rolls Royces and all these kind of cars. And he said something like, well, you've got to have transportation. You don't buy a Rolls Royce for transportation. You buy a Rolls Royce to make a point about yourself to other people. So that's what this throne is all about. And the throne had six steps and the top of the throne was round at the back. There were armrests on either side of the place of the seat. So it's comfortable. And then there were two lions uh, beside the armrests. And uh, so these uh, built in into their 12 lions stood there, one on each side of six steps that led up to the throne. So you went in to see the king. He was way up above you. This is called the intimidation factor uh, in these kind of environments. I'm just a little tiny guy, and you're the king, you know. So these courtrooms are like that, you know. I'm so sorry. I didn't even do anything, but I plead guilty just by the intimidation of the environment. So this whole thing is going on, you know, makes you feel small. So you got these 12 lions that stood there, and they're not real. They're uh, statues, and one on each side of the six steps, nothing like this had been made for any other kingdom. And so lions in the ancient world were uh, a symbol of royalty. I mean, who, you know, uh, the king of the beasts, the lions, right? So it's like the lion is the king. So it's a symbol of, of royalty. Well, Solomon's got to have 12 of them. So he's super king or something like that. And, and this is just the ornateness of what he's got going on. Uh, around them and his drinking vessels, what they drank with, all of them were gold and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon, where they kind of held their feasts and big celebrations, all everything you drank out of all the cups, everything pure gold, not one was silver for this was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. That's how much gold was in Jerusalem. You come in with something with silver, get that out of here. They'll kill me. Silver cup in this room. And for the king had merchant ships at sea with the fleet of Hiram. And once every three years, the merchant ships came bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and monkeys. 
So he develops a second fleet. You've got one fleet down in the Red Sea heading off to Arabia to get wealth and that kind of thing. This is a Mediterranean fleet that he establishes that then goes through the different colonies in North Africa to get all of this kind of exotic stuff. And, and he's, he, here he's got the money. I mean, you've got all this money. What are you going to spend it on? And so he's looking for crazy things to spend money on and uh, to amuse himself. And so every three years it would take a journey to do, and they'd come back with more silver and ivory, and they'd come back with apes and with monkeys. Now, uh, Solomon was a, as we read the book of Ecclesiastes, he was a learner. He liked to learn about trees. He liked to learn about animals. He liked to learn about everything. So he may have wanted these animals just as uh, a point of interest for his intellect. He was kind of a voracious learner. Uh, he would have spent, been better off spending more time in the Bible than he did in all these other things. And then it would have kept everything healthy. So it might have been just his interest uh, or... Again, he might just be kind of getting bored and needing exotic things to keep him uh, entertained. It wasn't unusual, again, in the ancient world for kings to have private zoos for their family and for people that would come and visit them. And so maybe he was establishing that kind of thing. And so Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. Back in verse 7, it was wisdom and riches. When we get here now to verse 23, it's riches first and wisdom second. Things are going sideways on Solomon now at this particular uh, point in his life. Now, all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, uh, which God had put on his heart. And each man brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, uh, eye, uh, armor, spices, horses, and mules at a set rate year by year. And so, got to bring a gift to get uh, before his presence. And Solomon, and so you've got all these people coming from all over the known world to come and pose questions to him like the Queen of Sheba did. So that tells us that what she did was not an isolated incident. This was a part of Solomon's weekly life to have people coming to him in, in that same way to hear uh, his wisdom. And so Solomon then uh, began to, uh, he was interest, became interested in weaponry and, and uh, military things. He gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. So this is a violation. God told in his law, he warned the kings three things. Don't multiply gold. Kaching, violation number one. Do not multiply chariots. Kaching, violation number two. Because the tendency God knew of the nation of Israel would begin to think that their security was based upon their military when their security was based upon God. So Solomon is violating, has thus far violated two out of the three major things that God asked of the kings of Israel. He's going to violate the third one in spades, so to speak, in, in chapter 11. So all of this is a violation of God's word. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. It was just counted as nothing. Now, silver is a precious metal. But this was, 
you, you see, I mean, we read something like this and I can't even get my mind around the kind of wealth that was in Jerusalem at that time that silver would be on the level of rocks in the minds of people. And he made cedar trees, which were very valuable, very prized for building projects in the ancient world. He made them as abundant as sycamores, which are in the lowland. I mean, it just there were so many that were used in the construction projects. It didn't seem special anymore. And also Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and uh, Kiva. The king's merchants bought them in Kiva at the current price. So he'd buy these horses. A chariot was uh, imported from Egypt at a cost of 600 shekels uh, of silver and a horse 150. And thus, through their agents, they exported them to all of the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. So he kind of got in the horse and chariot trading business. So he's interested in weapons and and the chariot was the most feared uh, military device in in Solomon's time. So it would be like having uh, drone missiles or something like this. So he's in a he's in an arms exchange thing that's going on. He's buying from Egypt. He's buying horses over here, putting deals together and then selling them to the kings uh, in in the surrounding areas. Now, when you uh, read of all of this wealth. Of, of Solomon. I mean, just unbelievable wealth, all the splendor and everything uh, about his uh, about his entire reign. Jesus also had a comment about that in Matthew chapter six. He said, therefore, I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you drink, nor about your body, what you put on your clothes. Is not life more than food in the body, more than clothing? He said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. They don't even they don't even know how to save. Yet your heavenly father feeds them and are not you of more value than they. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit or 18 inches to his stature? If I could do that, I'd be playing in the game tonight. (laughs) I'd be eight feet tall. And so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. He didn't have the beauty of a single lily. And he said, now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? After all these things, the Gentile seeks for your heavenly father knows that you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for today is its own trouble. God looks and he he doesn't have to try and imagine The wealth and the splendor of Solomon. He saw it. Jesus saw it. And Jesus said, in essence, I saw all of that. And I'm telling you, everything I saw that Solomon was able to put together can't even compare to a single lily that God 
creates, puts in a field, and allows it to be burned and to be gone in a matter of days. You think about us. We're God's creation. There's much more than a lily, as beautiful as a lily is. I like what in, in uh, uh, Paul in writing to the church at Ephesus, he describes us as Christians as God's workmanship. The word in the Greek is poema. We get our word poem from it. A poem is a work of art. It, a poem, it, it, like all art, is an expression of the heart of the poet or of the artist. And that's what God is making us into as Christians, expressions of his heart in this world. We are his poema, his work of art. And so you look at all of these things that Solomon had, all that he accomplished, all this wealth, all of it, none of it even remotely compares to what God is doing in a single Christian's life. And I don't say that just to say words. That's the truth of it. I'll tell you, for us as Christians, we get more joy out of sitting down in the morning with a cup of tea and two pieces of toast and our Bible open in communion with God than Solomon got out of all of that that he was in the middle of. This is why we can read it and not be envious of it on any level because of how rich God has made us in Christ Jesus and the things that can never be taken away from us. And so it's, it's beautiful. It's all there. It'll all be gone and taken by in just a matter of years. The Pharaoh of Egypt is going to come and take every one of those shields. They got to have it for like a couple decades. Hope you liked it. It's all going to be gone. I mean, the transfer of wealth and stuff by crooks and criminals and overthrows and wars and all of this. But what God has done in our lives and is doing in our lives, no one can take that away from us. No matter what happens in the world, we take that with us wherever we go. And we'll take that into heaven with us. And so Jesus, of course, helps us to keep all of this kind of thing in perspective. Well, I'm a little bit tempted to get um, into chapter 11 here, but I've been already 53 minutes and 37 seconds. But who's counting? I have a stopwatch up here. As most of you know, it means absolutely nothing to me. But I do want you to know that I do try to be sensitive on things. Chapter 11 is, is fabulous. I'm a little tempted to kind of rush through the first eight verses, but they're too important to rush through. And so we'll stop there tonight and, and we'll pick it up in chapter 11 uh, next time.